This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim and I teach in the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And I'm here with Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan. Hi there, Darren. A reminder that we now have a dedicated channel on iTunes and other podcast platforms to which you can subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Though you can also access the podcast via your web browser if you visit the Australian Outlook website. And that's the major website for analysis and comment hosted by the AIIA. Just look for the podcast tab and note uh, there is also a wealth of other outstanding content on there uh, that covers world events and foreign policy. Uh, like this podcast done through a uniquely Australian lens. Now, our major focus this week is on events that transpired within hours of the online publication of our last episode just a few weeks ago. First and foremost, I am speaking of the fact that we now have a new Prime Minister, Foreign Minister and Defence Minister. Malcolm Turnbull has been replaced by Scott Morrison, Julie Bishop has been replaced by Maurice Payne as Foreign Minister, and Christopher Pine has taken Payne's old job as Defence Minister. So in the first part of the episode, we're going to talk about the implications of these changes for Australian foreign policy. The other big event was the Australian government's effective banning of Chinese company Huawei from participating in the construction of the forthcoming 5G telecommunications network. Now, we won't debate the technical merits of that decision in today's episode, but we will cover the fallout and how this might shape Sino-Australian relations into the future. Finally, we'll sign off by quickly covering a number of other notable events, including Prime Minister Morrison's trip to Indonesia and agreement on a free trade deal, and the White House's decision to, for Donald Trump not to attend upcoming regional meetings, including ASEAN and APEC, and President Trump's threat to withdraw from the World Trade Organization. But first... Let's begin with the major news story. We saw two leadership ballots a few weeks ago, the ultimate demise of Malcolm Turnbull and after Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton challenged for the leadership, it actually being Scott Morrison, ScoMo, being the one who prevailed. We now have a new Prime Minister and a new Cabinet. So as has been widely commented upon, that's five Prime Ministers in a decade, six if you count Kevin Rudd's two terms. And Scott Morrison was, of course, Tony Abbott's Minister for Immigration and Border Protection from 2013 until December 2014. And he famously implemented the Operation Sovereign Borders program. And then later, under Prime Minister Turnbull, Morrison was the Treasurer. ScoMo beat out Peter Dutton and Julie Bishop for the leadership of the Liberal Party, but now faces an increasingly unstable political situation, especially with Malcolm Turnbull announcing his resignation, which will trigger a by-election in the seat of Wentworth. Now, Alan, our listeners are certainly not tuning in for our hot takes on the messiness of Australian politics. So let me ask first, how much does the identity of any or all of the Prime Minister, Foreign Minister and Defence Minister matter for the direction of Australian policy? In other words, do we expect Australia to do anything on the world stage in the coming weeks and months 
that would be meaningfully different to what we might have predicted under the former regime, as it were? Uh, well, it depends what you mean by meaningfully, uh, Darren. One of the striking things about Australian foreign policy for you know, the past 70 years has been the essential bipartisanship at its centre and the continuity between different governments. So, for example, there wasn't much in the government's foreign policy white paper with which the opposition has shown any disagreement at all. The alliance, uh, the importance of the Indo-Pacific region, our role in the South Pacific, uh, commitment to the rules-based orders, these are all staunchly bipartisan. And that's even truer in circumstances like these when the changes are within the governing party. You went through all the um, those key players, but all of them have been uh, members of the National Security Committee of, uh, of uh, Cabinet. So the differences are going to come in emphasis and skill of execution. There's no doubt that uh, Scott Morrison and Maurice Payne will need time on the job to match the networks and you know, professional skill of their predecessors, but that's, that's going to come. Uh, one thing I think we have lost is the opportunity for a prime ministerial visit to Malaysia, Thailand and Vietnam, which had been planned by Turnbull. I think that's a real shame. Uh, it's a very long time since we've had a bilateral prime ministerial visit to Vietnam, for example. Uh, and the cancellation of the prime minister's visit to Nauru for the Pacific Islands Forum, I also think will be a, a net loss. But these are what we've come to call in recent days the transactional costs of leadership change. Okay, well, what about how the rest of the world perceives us? Does the chaos, you know, all this chaos that frankly appears to embarrass and frustrate many Australians, affect Australia's standing in the world? Should I be writing in my upcoming submission to Australia's soft power review that we shouldn't continually execute backroom leadership coups that deprive the Australian people of the chance to choose the leader of their country? I know there have uh, been a lot of references to coup culture uh, recently. Uh, I know our New Zealand friends have been having a ball with all this. <laughs> but um, A, I don't think that many people outside diplomatic circles have noticed, to be frank, and uh, B, it's a manifestation of a robust democratic system. So it's not a coup so much as a nasty uh, boardroom fight, or maybe that should be a nasty barroom fight. <laughs> the Australian people uh, don't, of course, have the chance to choose the leader of their country under the Westminster system. They have the chance to elect one of their own representatives and the person in the House of Representatives who can command the majority of those representatives becomes the uh, Prime Minister. So, look, there are all sorts of practical reasons why changing Prime Ministers in uh, midterm is not a great idea, and I can see that it makes us a bit like what we used to think about uh, the Italians or the Japanese, but our reputation will survive this. We just shouldn't keep on doing it. <laughs> Does it mean anything for... You know, people working here in Canberra, the foreign policy bureaucracy in our embassies around the world. You know, is there anything uh, that listeners who don't concern themselves with how the Australian government works, especially the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Department of Defence, should know about the impact of these changes on policy or policy making? Uh, well, it'll be very frustrating for the practitioners. I was actually working in the Prime Minister's Department 
when Paul Keating launched his first leadership challenge to Bob Hawke um, in the international division. We just finished organising a major uh, European visit for Hawke. The briefing had all been prepared and printed. We'd worked very hard and it was exceptionally elegant work. <laughs> and Hawk, If you don't say so yourself. Hawke cancelled the trip. Uh, so uh, there was uh, an enormous amount of... Uh, of uh, of uh, disappointment, uh, so I, I was um, I shared the pain in that very limited sense with officials who'd been working on Turnbull's um, Asian uh, uh, visit. Uh, bureaucracies get used to working with ministers and learning how to deliver to them the information they need in the way that they need it. So PMNC will have to start again with Scott Morrison, uh, as will Foreign Affairs with uh, Senator Payne and. Uh, and Simon Birmingham, who's going to be the new trade minister. Yes. Uh, for defence, Christopher Pine is uh, already a pretty well-known uh, uh, quality, uh, quality there. It's also worth noting too, I think, uh, and I haven't seen much reference to this, that uh, Treasury is likely to resume a larger role in the international debate under Josh Frydenberg, the new treasurer. Uh, he worked, of course, for Alexander Downer, and this is a real in area of interest for him. So I imagine he'll be a bigger contribution to the National Security Committee debates on these matters. The other big change will be in the um, uh, staffers who you know, are in the offices of the various uh, ministers and who are often the major points of contact between the minister and the public service. Uh, many of them will have lost their jobs. Those who came from departments will be heading back there and others will be appointed. Uh, the things I've heard about the new Prime Minister in this regard, however, are uh, very positive. He's obviously selected some excellent new staff. Oh, that's very encouraging. So one final question on all of this drama, and that's the question, the obvious question about legacy. There have already been some thought-provoking pieces on Julie Bishop's tenure as Foreign Minister in the past week. Uh, I would note the piece by Alex Oliver and another piece by James Curran, both published in the Lowy Interpreter, and Nick Bisley in the AAA's Australian Outlook. My own personal reflection is, above all, that Julie Bishop was a very disciplined foreign minister. She navigated Australia's foreign policy challenges calmly and methodically and without hubris and with no surprises. Alan, do you have any personal reflections yourself? Uh, and more broadly... How should Australians judge the legacies of their foreign ministers, especially given, as you said, that most of the work is bipartisan uh, and often of very low visibility, given it happens a long way from our shores? Um, the first time I ever uh, met uh, Julie Bishop, I was at the Lowy Institute, and it was um, 2009, and we were holding a day-long uh, seminar in Sydney on Australia's relations with the South Pacific. Um, that wasn't a very high-profile issue uh, then or, or even now, but it was exceptionally important. Was um, she shadow foreign minister at that no, point? Well, she just... Uh, this is the interesting thing. She just stepped down, I think, either, you know, within the, the week, so it was only uh, days earlier, from the position of being shadow treasurer after a difficult and, um, and slightly unhappy time for her. And she decided, because she was deputy leader of the party then and could choose her portfolio to take on the foreign affairs job. So 
she was new, nude in the position. She attended this day-long meeting, listening attentively, um, asking good questions, taking copious notes. So I was really impressed. And her subsequent work in opposition, including the time she spent in the Pacific, reinforced my admiration. Uh, um, everyone has said she was an enormously hard-working minister and one of the most effective that we've had, I think, in getting across difficult as well as easy messages. We saw that with the Russians and the Chinese, but we saw it with the Americans as well. She regarded her job, I think, as one of solving problems rather than creating conceptual frameworks. Um, I uh, said recently that there'll be a bishop legacy, but not a bishop doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, some people uh, took me to task for that, saying that that was too higher bar, and maybe that was uh, right. Apart from the decline in the aid budget to historic lows, which I don't, is a legacy I don't think that she can um, uh, avoid, um, she will be remembered uh, very well, I think. In his final hours as treasurer, Scott Morrison was also the acting Home Affairs Minister following Peter Dutton's resignation after the first leadership ballot. It was in this acting capacity that SCOMO, along with Mitch Fifield, the Minister for Communications, made the long-anticipated announcement that the government would prevent certain companies from participating in the construction of Australia's 5G mobile network on national security grounds. The media release stated, quote, The government considers that the involvement of vendors who are likely to be subject to extrajudicial directions from a foreign government that conflict with Australian law may risk a failure by the carrier to adequately protect a 5G network from unauthorised access or interference, end quote. While Chinese telco giant Huawei was not mentioned in the statement, it was clear to all who read it, and especially to the Chinese, that it was the target. And there was a predictably strong reaction from Chinese media. The People's Daily tweeted, quote, China's foreign ministry Thursday urged the Australian government to abandon ideological prejudice and produce a level playing field for Chinese companies. The tabloid Global Times released an editorial describing the move as a, quote, stab in the back and stated further, quote, those who willfully hurt Chinese companies with an excuse of national security will meet their nemesis. Ouch. These barbs, of course, come only weeks after our former Prime Minister's attempted reset of Sino-Australian relations in a speech at UNSW, which we discussed in our last episode. Now, this is a very complex issue, and I want to separate it into three separate categories. The first is an assessment of the merits of the decision and the genuine risks to national security. The second issue is the politics behind the decision here in Australia itself. And the third is, of course, the response of China and perhaps effects around the world. Turning to the politics then, Peter Harcher of the Sydney Morning Herald reported that the decision had been made a week earlier, but that the government had wanted to avoid drawing attention to it and waited until they couldn't delay any further. Reports suggested that Turnbull was opposed to this move and favoured limited involvement of Huawei in the periphery of the 5G services, and that this was supported by analysis from the Signals Directorate and from DFAT. 
Reporting also suggested that the communications department had supported some involvement from Huawei on the grounds that it would lower costs to the consumer. Peter Dutton, as the powerful Home Affairs Minister, however, disagreed and took the side of ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, and advocated for a ban at a time which, if you remember, his political power was already growing rapidly in the lead-up to the leadership challenge. Now, according to Jennifer Hewitt at the Australian Financial Review, other cabinet ministers did not understand the technological implications of the analysis provided by the security agencies, and so were happy to follow the advice of Dutton and ASIO. So, Alan, we obviously don't know what truly happened behind closed doors here. Clearly, this issue would have gone to the National Security Committee of Cabinet, though in her report, Jennifer Hewitt of the Fin Review noted that it was not clear whether the decision went to the broader cabinet. Can you start by explaining what the National Security Committee is and how its role differs from the broader cabinet? And then speaking generally, is it always clear when a decision will be made by the NSC or whether it needs to go to the broader cabinet? Uh, Well, the National Security Committee of Cabinet was an innovation introduced by John Howard when he came to power in 1996. Uh, although there'd been earlier cabinet committees that looked more narrowly at things like the uh, intelligence budget. Uh, it was a really important uh, structural change, I think, in the way we, uh, we run uh, government at the centre because it brought together a number of the key national security agencies as well as uh, Treasury in order to uh, give a, an economic perspective, the membership Uh, as with the membership of all cabinet committees, uh, changes with uh, each government and Mm -hmm. according to the the Prime Minister. There's a sort of set group of ministers who are members and then uh, if there's a particular issue on which others are involved, they can be brought in for um, for particular particular, um, uh, discussions. Uh, Cabinet's always had um, a number of different committees. The Expenditure Review Committee um, is uh, is well known. And the, the difference between them and full cabinet uh, in part is that officials sit at the table with ministers and participate in the discussion where they don't at the, uh, at the full cabinet. NSC, though, is uh, special. It meets in a Secure facility. Secure room and telephones have to be handed in at the uh, door and much of its uh, work is highly classified and that's why the discussion is kept to a small group of agencies. It's up to the Prime Minister to decide as the Chair of Cabinet what issues are going to be taken to the the broader group. So um, uh, Scott Morris and Malcolm Turnbull, when this decision was taken, can make that decision. So even though the reporting is that Turnbull favoured somewhat of a permissive role for Huawei, ultimately he was the one who decided whether it would go to the National Security Committee rather than the Cabinet itself? Well, it would have gone, it would have gone uh, to the National Security Committee because it would have involved highly yes. classified material. It could then have also gone at a sort of different level of classification to the okay. uh, broader cabinet, if the 
Prime Minister wanted to reframe in the um, debate in that way? Well, now that the decision has been made and announced, it's hard to see a reversal in the future, especially given that the reasons were anchored in national security and had the support of the relevant agencies. No future government, Labor or coalition is going to want to depart from that, I would think. But if we believe the reporting, there perhaps wasn't 100% unanimity inside different government departments or among different government ministers. Yet this is a hugely consequential decision, not just for our telecommunications network, but for our foreign policy and perhaps even the foreign policy choices of of other countries. That's really interesting, I think. Uh, Alan, do you have any broader reflections from your long career on the politics of these kinds of decisions? Is it possible that despite a rigorous policymaking process involving multiple actors inside government and the security agencies and different departments, that sometimes major foreign policy decisions such as these are still marginal calls and might tip one way or the other based on personalities and political power dynamics? Yeah, well, look, I did think that one of the most interesting parts of Jennifer Hewitt's uh, reporting on this was her line that um, other cabinet ministers had conceded they did not understand the complex technology but were happy to be guided by security agencies. Now, this is always an issue with um, uh, difficult uh, technological decisions for any government. It's hard for politicians accurately to judge the risk they're prepared to take if they can't understand the uh, underlying science and technology. And for the security agencies, the risk tolerance is always going to be very low. So there's no easy way out of this except to hope that policymakers uh, press their officials for the clearest and most accurate possible explanations of uh, of complicated issues like this and that officials make sure that policymakers understand all the dimensions involved. Decision-making in government is um, like decision-making everywhere. It can certainly swing on the personalities involved and on the arguments that are made on the the day and uh, the whole range of other, you know, human Mm. foibles on which decision-making rests. Picking up on that point about the lack of expertise amongst uh, ministers and, and politicians, this is obviously also a problem in the United States and how they're dealing with Russian interference and the role of Facebook and social media. The House of Representatives is remarkably um, you know, unqualified uh, to, to, and seemingly disinterested in many cases to learn about these things. But it strikes me that these, this is not the last time the Australian government is going to face a complex technical decision like this. Mm. And if I understand you correctly, Alan, that uh, the tendency is to err on the side of caution and be highly risk averse, does that imply that we can expect similarly conservative um, positions in the future and that it's going to be very hard um, to see foreign technologies uh, introduced into this country because of the consequences that might have that lawmakers don't really understand? Well, there's there's always... um uh, that's always going to be a, a problem. That, that, that was uh, just um, uh, mind-blowing, wasn't it, that, that uh, coverage? Was it, it was the Senate uh, committee, wasn't it, that uh, Mark, uh, Zuckerberg, oh, Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg uh, appeared Justified. on the questions about, uh, about 
yes. Facebook and the ignorance uh, yes. thereof were, were uh, remar- remarkable. Um, so uh, it's, it, it is always going to be um, a, a problem and it's going to get a more difficult problem mm. as, uh, as uh, life becomes more complicated uh, uh, all around us. Um, there's certainly an argument for wishing that there were more uh, scientists and people with uh, STEM backgrounds in uh, in Parliament, or just millennials, more millennials in Parliament. Or, or, or millennials. <laughs> okay, okay. No, I don't care. All right, uh, let's see that. Let's turn to the Chinese reaction then. To what extent will this derail the reset? Uh, how much does it matter that it was the Turnbull government who made the decision, even if it was announced by Scott Morrison? Does that enable the new government, led by Morrison and, and Maurice Payne and others, to adopt a, a let's put this behind us approach with Beijing? What can the government do to smooth things over? Oh, they wish, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. At the end of our last discussion, we pointed to the 5G decision as something that would affect how the Chinese uh, viewed the reset. And I don't think they are remotely likely to see uh, Morrison and Payne as simple bystanders uh, in this uh, business and to move quickly on. On the other hand, it's difficult to know how the Chinese can continue to argue that the Australian telecommunications sector should be open to everyone but not uh, China's own. Uh, the only thing I think the government can do is articulate clearly and consistently its, uh, its approach on this. Um, Morrison will be able to meet Xi Jinping at the uh, G20 APEC and EAS uh, summits. The interesting thing to watch will be when Maurice Payne is able to make an official visit to Beijing. If and, and when. If and when. Okay, well, let's turn to some other matters now. Firstly, to Indonesia, where on the 31st of August, Prime Minister Scott Morrison made his first overseas visit since becoming Prime Minister the week before. And it's quite unusual, I think, for a new Prime Minister to travel abroad so soon after taking office. And as you noted earlier, Alan, the remainder of the planned trip by Malcolm Turnbull to Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, and to the Pacific Islands Forum was cancelled. But the major impetus for Prime Minister Morrison to go to Indonesia was the signing of an outline of a free trade agreement between Australia and Indonesia that had been eight years of negotiations or had eight years of negotiations behind it. Now, the full text is yet to be signed, uh, and though my understanding is that the details are in place. Now, interestingly, this will be Indonesia's first free trade deal in almost a decade, as protectionist pressures have been strong in the country's domestic politics. I read that one possible impetus from President Jokowi is to relieve downward pressure on the Indonesian currency by signalling renewed openness in the economy. But from our perspective here in Australia, two-way trade is around $16 billion a year, which makes Indonesia our 13th largest trading partner. Now, Alan, given the chaos of the leadership spill uh, and the problematic, shall we say, polling numbers facing the coalition, it's clear that the decision to travel to Indonesia was not a cost-free exercise for Morrison. You know, it's hard to see how marginal voters in Queensland are going to support or give the Prime Minister points for doing this. 
So what is the logic of going now as opposed to delaying for what would be understandable reasons? I think you're a bit hard on the electors of Longman and Dixon, uh, Darren. I, I certainly don't think they'd mark him down for, uh, for going. Um, look, if I'd been in Scott Morrison's office, I think it would have been a no-brainer to go. Um, you could do it quickly. The preparations had all been uh, made, mm -hmm. so there were some solid announceables uh, for you to get out of it. Um, it was to Indonesia, which has been the first stop overseas for most Australian prime ministers since uh, Paul Keating. Okay. Uh, so it was important to get that right, and this was an early opportunity to do it. Uh, and the visit was going to be predictable. Um, unexpected and embarrassing things were unlikely to happen, mm -hmm. but you couldn't say that really for an encounter with Dr Mahathir in Malaysia or for the uh, Pacific Islands Forum in Nauru where Australian offshore processing of uh, refugee applicants would be um, a major issue. So this was neat, simple, uh, pre-prepared. Uh, the joint declaration on a comprehensive strategic partnership uh, which they issued was unusually strong as these things go. Um, I think it had, uh, there's all the, the hallmarks in it of an extensive Australian diplomatic uh, effort to uh, uh, behind it, but it's a, it's a, it's a document of uh, some substance. Um, if there was a sense of deja vu about some of it and I remember an announcement that our economic ministers were to meet on a regular basis, which also appears in this one, first coming out of an Australian prime ministerial visit in 1993. But that's not to minimise the importance of what was done. Well, as you say, Alan, the two leaders issued a joint declaration uh, which made references and raised concerns around the rules-based regional architecture without making specific mention to China or any other actor. Angus Grigg at the Australian Financial Review argued that for Jokowi at least, but probably also for Australia, the deal isn't really about trade. Uh, Grigg's analysis quotes our own ANU professor Hugh White saying that an FTA is a cheap and easy way of building weight into a relationship. How much weight should we give this perspective? Uh, look, here we are sitting in the Crawford School and surrounded by rampaging economists. So I've learnt that we need <laughs> to think about these things as preferential trade agreements rather That's than pre-trade agreements. Um, and there's no, there's no doubt that the Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, it's got an absolutely incredibly complicated um, acronym, uh, uh, is more a signal-sending exercise than a breakthrough in trade. And maybe the biggest signal um, that uh, Jokowi is trying to, to uh, send is that uh, the protectionism, which has been a growing feature of Indonesian policy recently, uh, has its limits. Mm. But um, that signal will only uh, work if the document, um, if the agreement eventually gets through the Indonesian parliament. Mm. We've still got to... Uh, see that. How much weight free trade agreements build into a relationship uh, is not that uh, clear to me. Okay. Okay. Well, finally today, we can't avoid a brief mention of Donald Trump with the White House announcing... Always good. 
for an extra item. Always good to fill the content, to provide the content for our listeners. And rely on Donald. Well, the White House has announced that Trump will not travel to the region as originally planned in November, which means he will miss various meetings with ASEAN leaders at the East Asia Summit and, of course, APEC in the PNG. And Vice President Mike Pence is going to attend in his stead. Now, the major news angle that I read is that this reduces opportunities for Trump and President Xi of China to meet in person to sort out the ongoing trade dispute. Uh, The one remaining chance this year will now be the G20 meeting in Argentina. At the same time, Trump has been making threats on Twitter uh, to withdraw from the World Trade Organization. And so we sort of, I mentioned that to put all of this in context. Alan, what's the significance of this decision to withdraw uh, and, of course, you know, Trump's obvious disdain and disregard for multilateral mechanisms, particularly those in Asia. Oh, look, I think it's a, a really disappointing uh, decision on President Trump's part. There have only been a small handful of times uh, in, the, uh, in the past when US presidents have not attended uh, these meetings and, the, and uh, then the reason was uh, you know, pressing commitments at home. Uh, the decisions, though, is consistent with his general distaste for multilateral organisations. You saw it, um, you know, dramatically at the G7 mm. uh, summit uh, recently, and his um, his threats on withdrawal from the WTO um, are also part of the uh, same general theme. Uh, he's obviously got a preference for one-on-one mm. deal making over sitting around tables with uh, groups of uh, other people. And in this case, he appears to have chosen Paris and Dublin Mm. over Port Moresby and uh, Singapore. But it's a really confusing message to send to everyone in the region, whether they're allies or uh, competitors. And it reinforces the growing um, tension, I think, between the sort of language being used in documents like the uh, National Defence Strategy and in the statements of um, Defence Secretary Mattis and the actual um, actions of the President in things like the withdrawal from the TPP and his treatment of Japan and uh, South Korean allies uh, at different times. Um, But being Donald Trump, that may be the whole point. Uh, I'm not sure whether the Australian visit was a real option, uh, but if it had gone ahead, I, mm, <laughs> I'm ambivalent about whether it would have usefully co- served the cause of the Australia-US uh, alliance. When you were speaking earlier about the predictability of Scott Morrison's visit to Indonesia, mm. I immediately thought of <laughs> what might have happened had ScoMo <laughs> been <laughs> intended for Washington instead. Okay, well, before we wrap up, let's quickly do our final segment on reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment? Uh, It's watching uh, this time, uh, Darren. Um, I've been looking at the um, ABC uh, program Foreign Correspondent, which you can catch on uh, on iView, in which the veteran ABC reporter Sean Dorney, who's now quite ill, uh, returns to Papua New Guinea a country he's known so well and reported on for uh, 40 years. It's a really moving tribute to one of the great Australian journalists and a reminder of how important 
uh, the development of personal links with our neighbours in the Pacific area uh, is and what we lose when we don't have them. Reverting to what I was saying before about uh, Julie Bishop, this was one thing that she really understood. Okay. Well, I have both a reading and a listening to share with our listeners. The, the book is by Yasha Monk, uh, who is a lecturer at Harvard and also at the New America Foundation. And it's called The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And the listening is Monk's podcast, which is called The Good Fight, uh, which I've been a keen listener to now for a few months. And some listeners who listen to the Ezra Klein show may have known uh, of Monk um, from his interview there. But Monk's focus is on populism uh, and authoritarian right-wing populism in particular. And for all of our studies of the rules-based international order and the possible impact of rising powers like China and India on the rules of our system, uh, what Monk is showing us is that some of the greatest threats come from within you know, established democracies in the West, from populist, um, you know, often xenophobic and, and, and other sort of powerful political currents uh, coming from people who feel like the present system for whatever reason isn't working for them and electing people like Donald Trump who promised to upend it and try something new. So it's a very engaging book. The podcast is excellent. Uh, I recommend both to our listeners. Okay, well, that is all for this fourth episode of the Australia in the World podcast. We want to thank AIIA intern Stephanie Rowell, our research assistant, and Manny Bovell, our audio engineer. Also, Martin Pierce of the Crawford School for technical support, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and last but not least, AIIA CEO Melissa Conley-Tyler for her constant support. Thank you and talk to you again soon.